Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to video number 80 and audio season 4, episode 18 of Music Is Not a Genre. Thank you for listening. If you are only listening on anchor.fm slash music is not a genre, it's a place where you can also go and support the podcast for any number, which would be greatly appreciated. It helps me do what I do. If you are watching on youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, thank you so much. You can also support the video of this and get a whole lot more at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Let's get right to it this week. This is a special week because I'm introducing uh, another segment, I guess, or sub-series or whatever I'm calling these things. You know, I have my music is everything and I have my death is dumb and a bunch of other things. And this one is brand new. It's the first of its kind. And uh, I'm not sure I like this title yet, but I'm going to go with it because it's what I've got. And basically, uh, well, here, the title is... The Freewheeling Ketchup Machine, number one, Goomba edition. And what I'm doing here is this. I've been fortunate to have had uh, people comment on the videos, uh, people comment over at Patreon, give their input, uh, suggest uh, topics for a podcast, which is something you can do at Patreon, something I really value, knowing what uh, all y'all want to hear. And in general, have been reviewing older episodes of my podcast for various reasons. It's one of the reasons why I have made uh, changes this season, because of listening back, I thought, oh, I could add this, I could do that. But other, the other thing that happened when I listened back was I uh, heard stuff that I left out or that I wanted to continue to comment on. Uh, sometimes there's a mistake I make or while I'm in the middle of recording the podcast, uh, an idea comes up that somehow just doesn't fit into the flow of everything. So this idea of uh, this freewheeling ketchup machine is I am going to catch up with the old podcasts with no rhyme or reason other than these were the things that struck me either again from listening to older podcasts or from, you know, viewer and listener comments. So you out there may be one of the people that I am name-checking here. Uh, I have a list. If you take a look at the text below, you will see the topics that I am discussing. So if for some reason you like one better than another, feel free to skip to that one. But uh, I'm going to run through these pretty, you know, back-to-back. So you may just want to tune in from beginning to end. The first uh, topic is one of my favorites, Matthew Sweet. I, he was one of the first artists 
for whom I connected with the fan base on Facebook. And that has shown just, you know, increasing returns for every artist that I've done that with. It's great to connect with other fans and they have subscribed to YouTube and, and listened through and, and, as you will see, given their own take on things, you know, because uh, I, you know, I never claim to be an expert on anything. If I know stuff, it's because I know stuff or I've researched it, but there are plenty of things that I might uh, miss. And this is a perfect example of one. Vinny C on YouTube commented on his favorite or one of his favorite Matthew Sweet albums being Wicked System of Things. Now, what's special about that? is that I didn't know that album existed. Uh, for some reason, that's not, either not on the list online or it was released independently, which is something that he has done in the past. He's, he's released Japanese issues of certain albums and things like that, and I really did keep up on most of that. But when I kind of slowed down with it and lost touch in a way, I think this is one that fell through the cracks. And I'm glad that Vinny C., mentioned it because I went and found it on on YouTube and really loved it. It's one of his stronger later period albums or mid-period albums. I would recommend going out and finding, if you're a Matthew Sweet fan or a Power Pop fan in general, finding Wicked System of Things and giving that a listen and maybe finding out from somebody why that hasn't been distributed. It's always, it boggles my mind, you know, no service is perfect. No service is so comprehensive that it has everything in the world. I listened to this other podcast, Fall of Civilizations, and it's cool that so many of those civilizations tried to compile the entire body of knowledge of the world into one library. And sure, you know, way, way long ago, there's a whole lot less knowledge, a lot fewer people, uh, but even then it was virtually impossible to do. So to expect a service like Apple or Spotify to have every bit of music in the world is is crazy. Uh, nevertheless, you do wonder, or I do wonder, why there are certain albums that aren't on that service. And yes, the answer is the artist uh, either doesn't have control of that material and because it fell through the cracks and was released in a different way, there was no label that distributed it through the streaming services and or it went out of print and the label thought it wasn't worth it to include that streaming. When I was going through and listening to all of Asia's material because of the, the you know, a book that my uh, good friend wrote that I'll probably be reviewing in a future podcast, I was amazed at how many Asia albums are just not on YouTube and or not YouTube on on uh, not on Spotify or Apple or any of those. But you know, uh, you can find them on YouTube. You can find almost anything on YouTube, music-wise, especially so many things you can't find elsewhere. So look for Wicked System of Things, Matthew Sweet. Uh, another viewer, Matt Stevenson made the point that the mid-90s were awful for artists who weren't in the top 40 and that many indie labels went under. Now, yes, absolutely. And I think the reason why we associate that with the mid-90s is because that was when it started to happen in droves. You know, it was happening even before then. It really, the shift 
away from artist development and having kind of a broader roster of artists and having kind of your tiers of, well, we have a niche artist who has smaller fan base and then we have the big mega artists and everybody in between started, well, I don't know when it started, but there were whispers of it in the 70s. Certainly it did really started to take hold in the 80s and by the 90s, just forget it. So I think Matt's point is uh, valid, is, is very valid. And it, and it didn't stop. Now, labels have come and gone, indie labels, and, and so many uh, are still around, thankfully. But I've been amazed at researching bands and going through their catalog and, and their chronography and finding that bands who created their own label that then distributed other artists, that label went under. And a perfect example is uh, Grand Royal by the Beastie Boys, when it came about, it was a it was a zine. It was a record label. They released a ton of indie artists, including uh, Sean Lennon, and um, I believe at the drive-in, and those they went on to bigger things. Uh, I'll be talking about at the drive-in a little later, and that that label didn't last very long. I think it lasted maybe ten years, and that was surprising to me, considering the heft that the Beastie Boys have and the love of music in general. But just, you know, in terms of just cold money, finances, it just wasn't worth it, is what I assume. And it's, it takes a lot to run a label. It's like when Apple was created by the Beatles, and they ran with it for a while, and then they just kind of abandoned it. It's just, it, it's a full-time job. So to be an artist and to, be, to run a label, that's a lot. So that makes sense. Todd Cameron uh, mentioned, uh, he said that he believes... Matthew Sweet relied on great producers and great musicians and that he's not good without them, that his music is mediocre without them. Now, there's a couple things here. Yeah, there's a little gut feeling that says that the stuff that Matthew Sweet did in the early, mid-90s is stronger in part because the people he collaborated with understood him and enhanced what he did and brought it out even more, fleshed it out in many ways and structured it and all of that. But this brings up a point which I believe is a future uh, podcast uh, topic that I'll be getting into on Music is Everything, which is can good production save a bad song? And I'm not going to get into whether it can or can't, again, for a future episode but I think that we are often fooled by good production, by great production, and then deluded into thinking, well, then if somebody changes producers, that means that the music itself is, is worse. I will say I favor some producers over others, some collaborations over others, and so that does have an impact. But I don't think that means that the songs or performances themselves were necessarily any better or worse. Uh, so that's hard for me. I can't fully disagree with Todd, but I can't fully agree with that either. Uh, which is all to say, thank you for commenting at all, because I honestly kind of like the disagreements more than I like the agreements. So that's a bit of a thrill. And also to say that if you don't know Matthew Sweet, I can't tell you, you know, uh, enough to go check him out. Next topic is not a topic. Uh, I did an episode on... Chart Action 83, The Greatest Hits of 1983 by KTEL, and how greatest hits albums are awesome. 
And a viewer, Dr. Hook, yeah, said that a friend of his had chart action 83 and loved it. And he, you know, loves albums like that. And liked the fact that when I was trying to count my collection of greatest hits albums, I settled on the number a shitload. And that's yes, because I think, and I'll just summarize what I said in that podcast. There's a value in going to greatest hits albums, not just because it gives you highlights, but because if you don't know that artist, it's a great way to get to know. I would always recommend going further because I don't think there's any greatest hits album that I have, whether it's from a year or from an artist or a genre, that uh, isn't missing something that I wish was on there. But it's a great place to start. They are very, very valuable. The next topic, Billy Joel, big one. And uh, this, I had a long discussion with a viewer, Jim uh, C, Jim Costelli, on YouTube. And uh, he brought up so many uh, points related to Billy Joel. And the interesting thing is, when I said, oh, Billy Joel, Elton John, and all that podcast, he said he actually favors Elton John, but partly because there's so much more material, there's more to like, and maybe that's why. Or maybe uh, lyrically, the way Bernie Taupin writes lyrics he uh, it resonates more with Jim than Billy Joel's lyrics, and I totally get that. He also made the point that I am wrong about the fact that uh, if you're a Billy Joel fan, you're more likely to be a Beatles fan, and if you're an Elton John fan, you're more likely to be a Stones fan, because he is, a, he is much more of a Beatles fan than a Stones fan, but he's more of an Elton John fan than a Billy Joel fan. Uh, I need to please donate several thousands of dollars because I need to do a case study on this. This is very important for me to find out so I can tell all of you if that was right or not. Because I still have a sneaking suspicion that that Jim might be the exception rather than the rule. But, you know, there's no way to know without that case study. So monies, please. Let me the monies. Uh, Now, Jim brought up a more important topic related to Billy Joel, which is the uh, idea that he is, you know, kind of criticized for being a mimic, for saying, oh, I'm going to do this kind of music, uh, you know, soul or doo-wop or whatever he did on Innocent Man or Beatles-esque stuff or you name it. And and yet uh, Elton John has not necessarily been taken out on the idea that here's a British artist whose entire catalog is just rife with blues and country and and other American, you know, types of music. And he makes a point that I kind of went on to in my appropriation or adaptation homage uh, episode of this podcast, which is to say that how you use the music and what credit you give makes the biggest difference. Why? Because everybody takes, everybody appropriates in one way or another. You know, unless you grew up in a cave, never having heard any other music, you were influenced by something. And I think he has a valid point there that they both in their own way used other music to create what they did. And yet still both created very, you know, unique music, music that sounds like them, which, as he said, as Jim said, if you're an artist, that's what you want. You want your music to sound like you and and like no one else. He also said that Billy Joel was often criticized for being fake blue collar. 
And I don't know any enough about his history to know, but I think that's kind of silly. And, uh, you know, there, I think when you get into someone's personal life, when it comes to do with, uh, performers, unless they have done something heinous that makes you just rethink them as a human being, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get involved whether or not my guess is I believe Billy Joel was a middle-class dude, you know, and I don't think he ever pretended to be anything else. I don't think he ever really gave any time or energy into pretending to be anything. I think he's always done what he's wanted to do and critics, you know, who slam him for that have too much time on their hands. <laughs> and, uh, the other thing that Jim said about Billy Joel or in general is when he disagreed with me on the Stones Beatles thing, he said, it really doesn't matter what somebody's opinion is as long as it's well-reasoned and based on solid knowledge. And this, forget this, I mean, this should be just an entire episode in and of itself, because this has become the problem with news in general and discussion of any topic in general. It's probably, it's been around forever, I'm sure, but it's become super prevalent advent of, you know, cable news and the internet to where people think that a counter argument or opinion that is not at all based in fact or any kind of reasoning or logic is somehow equal to the opposite argument? And no, because if you look back, let's say you look back at somebody like William F. Buckley. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't know enough about who was conservative, who was liberal to really care, you know, until I got a little older. But what I always liked about William F. Buckley is that he seemed like he really thought through things and that he, he you know, wove out his arguments in a way that you could tell there was reasoning and logic behind them. They were based on precedent and other things like that. And even though ultimately you or I may disagree with him, you have to respect that somebody is doing that and that they're not weaving conspiracy or using double speak or using circular logic or something like that. And I think that, um, bring, to bring it back to music, if you say, I don't like the Beatles, which what, to me is what's interesting is you could say that about any artist, any music artist in my book, except for the Beatles and Prince. And I, I may be missing a few, but as far as popular music artists, if Anybody who says flat out, I don't like those two artists, there's, there's something not happening there in terms of processing the music, whether it hasn't been listened to enough or whatever you want to say. But if that person then gave this beautiful discussion and argument and, and reasoning as to why, then again, I'll respect that person even if I disagree. And that's why I'm always asking for all of you, please, if you, you know, disagree with me, I want to hear. Uh, another thing that kind of touches on social issues, the episode I did with the Hives about Swedish music, uh, which I'm going to bring up a little later too, Swedish music, uh, talked about how, uh, you know, income inequality and the uneven distribution of wealth in so many ways is just uh, killing so many countries and people. It keeps coming up. And I find it to be typically disappointing that even people who are on the side 
of wanting to help those less fortunate tend to cave in to the power of money. And whether that has to do with record companies who eventually just succumb to only wanting to increase their bottom line or corporations, you know, ripping different types of benefits and, and uh, time off and things like that from their employees and, you know, increasing productivity, which is a bullshit phrase, uh, or, some, you know, some political uh, people passing legislation that's compromised because they're afraid to anger the people who are giving them money. Any of that, it just shows how the uneven distribution of wealth is is slowing and or, or reversing progress in many ways. Uh, quickie, Liz Fair uh, episode. I couldn't remember the name of the artist that she was compared to when she released her eponymous album that was done with the you know pop uh, power pop producer. And it was Avril Lavigne. So right around that time is when she debuted, I think Skater Boy or whatever. And it might even have been the same producer. I can't remember. But I still make the same point, which is any any artist, I think it's harder to be mainstream successfully than it is to be indie successfully. Because there's a lot more leeway in indie as to what you can do, because part of it is experimental, whether it's 10% experiment or, or you know, 95% experimental. Whereas there are certain, you know, codifications with pop music that if you don't meet those requirements, it's not going to work. So for someone as indie as Liz Fair to do what she did, and even be compared to Avril Lavigne, and put out songs that kicked ass in an album that if you listen to the lyrics is just as deep as anything else she put together is I just think shows what an incredible range she's always had and her new album is great by the way speaking of new albums uh these a previous episode I uh, did on they might be giants they just released a new album called book in conjunction with a book by the way and I love it. I think that it actually sounds more like their earlier material from, say, their first uh, 10 years than it does the material that came after that. And even though I like a lot of everything they've done throughout their, you know, 35-year career, uh, this one has certain elements about it that remind me of the older stuff that I really, really like. And it also reminded me that I fall prey to something that I constantly talk about, about other people, which is most good music needs to be listened to more than once to really be appreciated. And that the best music bears, bears repeated listening, holds up and repeated listening, and you discover more and more. And I listened to that album twice and this, it was the second time where I was like, oh, now I'm kind of getting the vibe and I really get it. And I guarantee you if I listened to it a third time, there'd be other things that would hit me where I'd be like, holy shit, you know, awesome. Um, I love older artists who release new material. I've said that a million times, uh, how I think a band like U2 has more validity in today's world than a band like the Beach Boys because they are really still releasing, but they're still trying to be vital and, and, and contemporary in some way. Uh, Duran Duran just released a new album. I haven't listened to it, but I really want to. I heard their first single and I liked it. ABBA released a new album and it sounds like ABBA, 
a lot of songs about animals on there, and it's funny in some ways. I don't know enough about ABBA. I haven't listened to their catalog to know whether it's, you know, uh, how it compares to their other material. But the fact that they came together and did it is awesome. And if you want kind of a taste to me, keep an eye on Dan is the song that you might want to listen to first. So what am I listening to now? Now, You know, I do chronologies, not all the time, but frequently, frequently. Right now I'm going through um, the chronology of uh, At the Drive-In and Mars Volta, Texas bands. Um, oh, shoot, man. Uh, Omar Rodriguez Lopez, I believe, is the dude. And then the other, the lead singer, and those two guys who were in both bands. And one was, the first one at the drive-in was more kind of emo, slightly screamo. It has, um, you know, some tiny progressive elements, but it's mostly just like hard-ass power pop, post-punk, uh, post-hardcore. And... Mars Volta is known for being one of the great contemporary uh, progressive rock bands. And I'm sucked in, you know. It's not, none of it is my all-time top favorite music, although there's certain elements about the drive-in that remind me of, like, Thursday and Taking Back Sunday. But it's amazing. A lot of it's just amazing. I'm not done yet, but I'm getting close. Prior to that, I listened to the entire, you know, chronology of Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, Audio Slave. And one thing that I touched on then that was a bit of a fib that I want to just reinforce now is in Chris Cornell's solo work, dive into it. It's worth it. And I think that my favorite albums of his were the first and the last. And they're very different from each other, but they're both really worth listening to. Uh, Yeah, and I won't say which one is, is more than the other. Prior to that, I did... Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and John Frusciante's work, which, oh my God, do not start with that band if you want to do a chronology because he put out so much material. And man, it's amazing. But he's sort of the, you know, Yoko Ono, uh, you know, musically of the Chili Peppers in that he's just, he was just so experimental. Not all the time. And even when he did stuff that was less experimental, his experimentalism creeped through, which made it super, super interesting. Uh, but that, and prior to that, I listened to all of Journey, Steve Perry, and Neil Schoen's uh, chronologies. And, oh man, if you don't know about Journey, just the fact, you know, they were progressive rock before Steve Perry came in, even straddling when Steve Perry came in. And... Neil Sean continued that in a lot of his solo stuff, although he was more kind of jazz than progressive, if you want to say that, and Steve Perry, Steve Perry. But uh, that's just catching you up on some of the bands I've done chronologies for. And now we get into the reason why I subtitled this uh, episode Goomba Edition. Cheryl Lundgren, I, when I asked for suggestions for future episodes said, well, uh, they used to listen to um, a compilation albums called Mob Hits, which were basically songs by Italian singers, Italian, mostly Italian-American singers. And she wanted to know uh, if they were made for mafia movies or how they were related to mafia movies and, and other Italian-type movies. And it brought up other 
you know, real to me, things I've been interested in about this topic anyway. And I discussed it a little bit when I was interviewing my dad, Nikki DiMatteo, but I thought it was great to revisit because there's a lot here. And, you know, first of all, I'll say, no, you know, those songs existed before those type of movies existed, and they were used because they're the soundtrack to a lot of people's lives who are in that culture and beyond the culture. So it just kind of, the reason they called them mob hits was kind of a kitschy, you know, tongue-in-cheek thing, but also to clue people into, yeah, it's Italian music. Well, there's Italian music and uh, Italian-American music, and then there's Italian-American music, and I, and that's kind of what I'm getting into here. So... You probably know, if you know anything about music, especially even more contemporary or older, how many singers, and I'm sticking strictly with singers because otherwise this could be ours, uh, are Italian. But what you may not know is there are a lot of singers who do not have Italian sounding names who are also Italian. So that's kind of just for fun because, you know, someone may ask me, why does this matter? It doesn't. None of it matters unless you happen to be into those kind of connections and cultural things. But otherwise, musically, yeah, you know, this is just fun. You could do this with any country or ethnicity or whatever you want to say would be just as fun. But because I'm half Italian, grew up mostly in an Italian-American culture, you know, and the question was asked by Cheryl, it's interesting to me. So people that, whose names, whose stage names were also Italian, who were either their actual names or close to it. Uh, let me start with those. So you have Frank Sinatra. You have Vic Damone, although, funny, he changed his real name to another Italian name. His real name is Vito Rocco Farinola. You have Louis Prima, Julius La Rosa, Jimmy Durante, Perry Como. Uh, Dion is a tricky one because he goes by one name, Dion, but his full name is, is Dion. It's Dion DiMucci. Uh, Al Martino is kind of like Vic Damone. That's an Italian-sounding name, but his, his uh, original name is Alfred Cini. Uh, Frankie Valli and all four seasons <laughs> are Italian. Uh, Mario Lanza, of course. Jim Croce, you know, different era, but that's an Italian name. Guy from the Philly area, I believe. A lot of, there's a lot of Philly connections here, actually, in this entire list. And there's a lot of Italians in Philly, I should know. Uh, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. Cuomo, we, the very uh, popular name these days, whether it's uh, famous or infamous, but that's the Rivers part of that. Annie DeFranco, indie, awesome, amazing. Read her memoir or whatever it is. Uh, Ariana Grande, her full name is Ariana Grande Butera. Liza Minnelli. Um, Annette Funicello. Michael Cerverus, which doesn't sound like an Italian name to me because it doesn't end in a vowel, but it is. Mitch Grassi from Pentatonix. Um, and something to, to remember here, and sometimes I'll point out, sometimes I won't. Some of these people are fully Italian, like, let's say, uh, Al Pacino. And some of them are half or part Italian, let's say, like Robert De Niro. You know, who's not full Italian. Who cares? This also reminds me, just a quick aside, of that Adam Sandler song where he sang about how many people you didn't know they were Jewish, but they are very famous people who either changed their names or you just didn't associate that with them being Jewish. That's kind of what I'm doing here with the Italian thing. Uh, Dean Martin, 
His original name is Dino Crocetti. He's Italian. Jerry Vale. His original name is Gennaro Luis Vitaliano. Couldn't get much more Italian. James Darren is James Ercolani. He was Italian. Tony Bennett is Anthony Benedetto. Frankie Lane was Francesco Paolo Lovecchio. Bobby Darren, one of my favorites. Uh, Bobby Darren and Tony Bennett, I, I put above Frank Sinatra on a personal level, not necessarily making uh, some kind of overall judgment there. But Bobby Darren's original name is Walden, Robert Casoto. Uh, Edie Gourmet, Steve, Steve Lawrence's uh, partner, was born Edith Gormazano. And Steve Lawrence himself, I forget his, his original name, but he's actually Jewish. So, you know, uh, it's very common that Jewish and Italian people uh, collaborate. Uh, let's see, Connie Francis, her name is Conchetta Rosa Maria Franconero, Bobby Rydell. Now, this is the a section here. These next three people are actually uh, childhood friends of my dad, who was an Italian dude, and grew up in South Philly. So consider these guys together. Bobby Rydell's original name is Robert Ritterelli. Uh, Frankie Avalon's name is Francis Thomas Avalone. Uh, Fabian's name is Fabiano Anthony Forte. Okay. And then you have Sonny Bono, whose last name is Bono. His actual first name is Sal, Salvatore. I always thought Cher was Italian as well. She's not. Uh, Just an interesting aside. And then you have somebody named Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanata. And I think at this point, people know who that is. It's Lady Gaga. Um, But yeah, that's couldn't get too much more Italian than that. Madonna Ciccone. Madonna. Uh, bon Jovi, all he did was change the Jovi part uh, in terms of spelling and made it more kind of rock, heavy metal with the J instead of G-I-O-V-I. Um, Frank Zappa. Uh, Lita Ford is part Italian, didn't know that. Phyllis Hyman is part Italian. Alicia Keys is part Italian. Billy Joe Armstrong is part Italian. Halsey. So I'm going old, contemporary, whatever. Halsey was born Ashley Nicolette Frangipani. Uh, Demi Lovato is part Italian. Britney Spears' grandma was Sicilian, which is Italian. <laughs> this is the joke that you're either Italian or Sicilian. At, uh, you know, ask, ask an Italian what that means. Uh, both Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Van Zant are half Italian, and they're clearly their mothers because their last names are not Italian. I didn't know this, but Tim McGraw is half Italian, which means his father, one of my favorite Philadelphia Phillies players, Tug McGraw, must have married an Italian woman, I guess. Selena Gomez is half Italian. Steven Tyler is part Italian, and I've known for a while that his original first or last name is Tallarico. Steven Tallarico. Cindy Lauper is part Italian. Just an interesting list, and I may have missed a bunch, but I thought as far as prominent singers, past, present, you know, and some future that that you know kind of covered a lot uh, one more note on this is that one of the most famous uh standard italian songs was not sung by an italian rosemary clooney sang mambo italiano she's the one who made it famous and what's interesting about that is that the whole thing was meant to be kind of a send-up it wasn't meant to be serious it insulted some italians but it's in the same way that Maybe mob movies insult some Italians, et cetera, et cetera. And I find 
it interesting that, uh, you know, we'll look quickly on that song. It was a mix of real Italian words, fake Italian words, Spanish words, and of just gibberish in general. And uh, it was written by a guy, co-written by a guy named Bob Merrill, who's from Atlantic City in Philadelphia. So another Philly connection with two Italian lyricists. So it was, but it was meant to be a parody, you know. But I find it interesting that uh, a group of people, such as Italian Americans, have two very opposite responses to the current cultural landscape, especially as related to immigration and minorities and, and, you know, those topics. Because there was a point that still in some, uh, you know, living people's lifetimes when Italians were considered, quote unquote, people of color, you know. And I learned watching a, a TV show, and I think I had heard it before and forgot, that, you know, phrases like Dago, Wop, and Guinea, which to me, I just laugh at, I find funny, like, just like Goomba. Now that just reminds me more of Super Mario than anything else. But all of those things, there's nothing about them that's insulting to me. If it's insulting to you, you know, let me know. I, I would love to hear about that and understand more why. But I think what we forget is that way, way back in history, those were racial epithets as strong as some of the ones that are still insulting today. And that Italians, like so many other uh, poorer, uh, you know, emigrants and people of color or have darker skin in some way or swarthy, you know, like Greeks or whatever you want to call that, were discriminated against for a very long time. Now, Italians as a group and many others have been, and Irish is another one, have been lucky enough to have assimilated enough into the culture now that people who don't know history will be like, what are you talking about? It's ridiculous. Who cares? You're all white. That's cool. Fine. And I'm not saying that history is today in any way because I've never felt that level of discrimination. And it's why I don't find those phrases, you know, Dago Wapkini, uh, insulting at all, because it doesn't affect me personally or professionally or in any way like that, so far as I know, you know. Um, but what's then happened is that, okay, there are plenty of races who have not really been assimilated into this society in a way that is good or comfortable, such as, uh, you know, Latinx uh, and African Americans, no matter how much, you know, Asians strides even Native Americans, that all of these groups made, they are still discriminated against in huge numbers all over this country, if not the world. And, you know, discrimination is, is often different from country to country, but that's something that kind of holds true is if you look different, you know, or have a different religion or something like that, then you will be discriminated against. And yet there's a, there's a kind of a phenomenon where, and I grew up with this, if you are a recent immigrant group, but not as recent as some others who are either have, who came over more recently or have, have not been assimilated as quickly, you do what you can to distance yourself from them. So I remember my dad telling me that a lot of people he knew 
as Italians would be insulted if they were called Latino, Hispanic, or whatever the phrase might have been back then, because they wanted to separate themselves from that group. And I think, like, logically, I can understand that, but that gets back to the point that I'm trying to make, which is I have noticed that so many Italian-American politicians are conservative, and not all, but so many, and so many of my of the people I know, relatives or not, who are Italian-American are also conservative, but again, not all. And I think it's because if you are among a group who was once discriminated against and kind of isn't anymore, and you know that, I, that feeling of wanting to separate yourselves, you, you is stronger in some people than others. And for those people, it causes them to denigrate people who have not been as accepted as, as you know, we have so that they create this stark separation. Well, we're not like them. You know, we've, we've, whatever it is we've done differently when a lot of it really wasn't in our control at all. It's just cultural and the forces of power and money and a bunch of other different things. Uh, and then there's the other side of that who feel a, a kinship or a certain connection that even though they may not go through or have gone through the experiences uh, discriminated groups are currently going through, they understand somewhere in their blood that there's a connection there, that if somehow a group of people, families, my ancestors were put upon in that way, that we shouldn't then look at people today as well, they're doing something wrong, or they're diff so different from us, so that must be the reason. I don't believe that, and so I, I kind of obviously fall on that uh, more progressive side of things, which is to say, find those connections between the people, you know, and as as opposed to trying to create these separations. I've said it before: division is not my thing. In connection, inclusion, you know, all of that is my thing. I end my every podcast with it, right? And and that's it for that topic. That's something I love to hear your opinion on. I'm going to end this episode with a song as I do. And I'm ending it with this song not because it's related to any of this stuff, but because it's a song that needs a little love of all of the rec songs on Spotify. The only one that hasn't gotten a single listen is a song called Wonder Wonder. I'm going to tack it on to the end of this as I do but please click the link. I'm going to deliberately put the uh, Spotify link in this time and give it a listen. Because, you know, just that it's, a, it's a little orphan that needs a little love. And, uh, and that's the only reason. I also think, you know, it's not a single, as you would say. But there are things about it that I enjoy uh, listening to and having done. And would love to know your take on it as well or your take on any of this, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for tuning in, listening, and watching. Those of you who are listening only, you're missing out on the fact that I have no props this time. This was just bare bones, me talking into the camera with nothing beside me. Uh, and I hope that you share this and all that stuff, and thank you for your support in any way, and I will talk to you next week.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 